Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but... (laughs) Sometimes I have a fantasy that I will come on this show and do an I'm a feminist, but about John Hamm. And the producers of the show will have secretly got John Hamm, <laughs> hidden him in a dressing room, and then get him to walk out on the stage behind me while I'm doing it. <laughs> Again, no. I'm a feminist, but... <laughs> Sometimes... When I'm feeling lazy, I let my boyfriend get on top. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but... (laughs) Um, This week, I have been campaigning for Repeal the Eighth in Ireland. Uh, not to brag. Um, <laughs> I've, thank you, love. Um, but I've been so busy giving out badges at train stations and putting postcards into letterboxes that yesterday I didn't remember that it was National Fish and Chip Day in Ireland, <laughs> which means that you get half-priced fish and chips out of anywhere. And uh, I regret working so hard now on the campaign. <laughs> God. Um, <clears throat> I'm a feminist, but even though I really believe in misogyny, I don't always know how to spell it. <laughs> like, where did the wise go? It, to be honest, nobody really knows the answer to that. Multiple wise? I mean, listen, it takes 2,200 feminists to spell misogyny. After the show, we'll go out into the street, we'll do it with our bodies. Okay. And maybe I'll never forget. Yeah. Good call. It's Eva. why, not how. It's actually. Yeah. We'll edit that bit out. Uh, I am a feminist, but I. Uh, I sometimes think when life gets overwhelming and you're trying to be a feminist and do all your best and succeed and think about your fertility and children and your relationship and you're waiting for a text back and all the other things that come with life and trying to get through it and you just want to have a nap. Um, I think to myself, God, I wouldn't mind swapping it in 
for the laid back, low responsibility lifestyle of a handmaid. <laughs> I'm a feminist. But there is a tiny part of me that is uh, trying to arrange my teenage son's marriage. <laughs> I've found the girl. Uh, I've made her friends with my middle child, who is my daughter. And so she comes around a lot. And I feel like maybe they'll just figure it out themselves. But if they don't, then that's what I'm here for. So. I'm a feminist but I didn't watch The Royal Wedding, not because marriage is an outdated concept where a woman is given away to a man, but because I didn't want spoilers for The Crown. <laughs> Thank you very much, let's start the show! That means we've been going as long as friends. It doesn't. It really, it really doesn't. We've been going not quite two and a half years yet, and we've got up to 100. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for still being interested. Uh, in fact, being more interested and telling other friends who then got interested, we really appreciate it, um, because without you, obviously, we couldn't book the Palladium. <laughs> well, we could, but it would be an extravagance. <laughs> Tonight we're talking about change. There's a lot of change, a lot of change, a lot of response to that change. I don't know if you saw the news today, Jason Bateman, Jeffrey Tambor, Morgan Freeman. It's like an awful day when you see a man's name trending on Twitter and you think, I hope he's dead. Oh God, like is this gonna be the week where I watch all the Morgan Freeman movies or never can watch a Morgan Freeman movie again? They are. They're pretty much now the options. But, you know, it's a time of change. Jason Bateman, you know, basically, we saw the way that men sometimes close ranks for each other. Did you see the story? Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Okay. <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor has been accused of a bunch of stuff. And there was an interview in the New York Times where one of the cast of... Um, uh, I wasn't prepared to explain it, to be honest, guys. <laughs> I just thought you were across feminist news. <laughs> Basically, Jeffrey Tambor, not a nice guy, Jason Bateman closed ranks. And then the next day, he's gone, I'm super sorry, I mansplained, I should have allied with her and instead I allied with him. And I'm kind of, a lot of people are going, oh, he's just doing that because I don't care why men are doing it. The power structures are changing and men are worried now they're going to lose their jobs if they behave badly. And that's good. Really. <laughs> As Sarah Pascoe was saying to me out the back, women have always been worried we would lose our jobs if we didn't play along with what the men wanted. And now men are worried that they'll lose their jobs. And listen, those guys of that generation, maybe they will go, we should still be able to do all this stuff. But the next generation will see a different sort of behavior. And that next generation is going to change. They're going to be the ones that are going to really, where we're going to really see that change and we're really going to feel this change. Like, this is all meant to be stand-up, but now I've stopped to do a small political broadcast. <laughs> I've just realised. Um, 
But it is, it is a, it's a sort of pushback response. And there's all sort of pushback responses. Have you heard of incels? I hope so, because I really don't want to explain that. Uh, <laughs> they're involuntary celibates. They're men on the internet who say, I am involuntarily celibate. And so they've shortened their name to incels, and they're very angry. They say, sex should be distributed more freely. They're basically like, they're claiming socialism for sexual intercourse. And they're saying, some men seem to have more than we do. Um, and they're saying, you have to re- women have to redistribute it fairly on a fair model. If Brad Pitt gets X, then I have to get at least Y. That's genuinely what they're saying. And they're really angry. They're really misogynistic. They're really racist. They're really, really, really violently angry on the internet. And here's the thing that incels don't know. Getting laid is hard for everyone. (laughs) It is, though. It is. They don't call it getting lucky for nothing. When I was a Jehovah's Witness, the elders in my... Seriously, I mean, obviously, I wasn't getting laid then very much. (laughs) There's nothing to kill your sex life like... Are you worried about the future? Um, It's not doing anything for it, let me tell you that. But they keep telling you, don't go to nightclubs or don't go to bars because sex will be freely and liberally offered there in a way that you will not be able to turn it down. Not fucking true! (laughs) When I left, I mean, I was just like, well, here's all the free sex. No! It's incredibly hard to find somebody on the earth you want to have sex with who also wants to have sex with you. That's why people get married. <laughs> you find someone and go, I'm finding this hard. Are you finding it hard? Yeah, I'm finding it hard. Should we find it hard together? <laughs> and you get married and you, and you have f- five years of, of sex, which is an agreed and consensual activity, and then you become a vol-cell. <laughs> like... We've done that now. Yeah. I mean, now we've got Netflix. Do we need to chill? That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm happy with most of the time with just the Netflix. Um, But we also don't understand why the incels are so angry. Because the way they explain it is like you can't have sex on your own. Like, that's why God gave you opposable thumbs, mate. Barely. But are there not YouTube videos on how to wank? Can we not send these men the information about... I don't understand. I would understand if there was no way of doing it on your own. And you were sitting there going, I just... I can't get on with my day. I mean, it's just... It is odd. It is odd. And the thing is, what they're not understanding is sex is not a commodity. It's not the new Bitcoin... You have to get somebody to want to do it with you. It has to be an agreed activity. It's not a transaction, it's an agreed activity. And those incels cannot ask us to want to have sex with them any more than we can ask them to not want to have sex with us. (laughs) You can't say to someone, I want this, I don't want that. And the thing is, how governments need to be doing more. Incels are funny, obviously. I mean, there's so many jokes in them. They're brilliant for comedy. Incels are objectively funny. But there were four mass murders in America last year, at least four, by men who self-identify as incels. This pushback from the patriarchy is real, 
and it has consequence, and it's kind of getting worse. We need governments to legislate. We need governments to see what's happening, to see the violent language that's used on Twitter, and to look at the consequences of that in our society and step up. And I think a lot of the time we think with governments, we just kind of go, whoever's in government, we go, well, what can you do? They're all as bad as each other. I mean, all you can do is vote every four years, occasionally go down to, you know, the parliament and shout and queue, you know, and that's all, that's it. What can you do? What else can you do? What can you do? They're all as bad as each other. What can you do? But I don't think we'd say that about anything else because effectively, collectively, we pay their wages. They are our representatives. They work for us. And if a few of us here had chipped in to buy a sweet shop because we thought that'd be fun and then we put some staff in and then we found out that the, the representatives of us in the sweet shop whose wages we were paying were selling coke to kids <laughs> and giving their mates backhanders out the back door we wouldn't just go well what can you do they're on a four-year contract <laughs> they're all as bad as each other you put in more managers of a sweet shop they'd only do the same not necessarily You'd go down, you'd have a word. You'd say, like, we think we can't have a word. We can have a word. We can go down and say, this is it. You're not doing it right. But I feel like if I, if I paid someone to care for my nan, because obviously I'm not going to do it. <laughs> well, are you? Are you caring for your nan? No, don't judge me. <sighs> it's not in our culture. There's nothing we can do. Um, I mean, the theme of the night has changed, but let's not go crazy. If I paid someone to, to care for my nan, and I'd given them a wage, and I'd given them money to buy her food and prescriptions and that kind of thing, and I went down to visit her, and I discovered that the carer had spent that money on drones to bomb other nans. <laughs> Tell me that's not what's happened. Have a word. You wouldn't just go, oh, well, that's what carers are like. What are you going to do? Hide her for four years now? Sort of have to live with her. You'd have a word. And if we all chipped in to buy a school, and then you went down to the school and you found the money you donated to be spent on books and buildings had again been used for drones to bomb nans, <laughs> you'd have a word. You'd say something. We've got to start saying something. We've got to change things. And I think there is sometimes, I think, we don't, we almost, it's not that we don't want to change things, but feminism is a force that fights the patriarchy. And if the patriarchy wasn't there, what would we do? And sometimes we like complaining about things and we like standing up to things, but actually, the situation as it stands, it's a bit like if Lex Luthor turned around to Superman and went, do you know what, you're right. <laughs> in some ways, he'd be pleased, sure, because he'd be like, that's good, because I don't want bad things happening. But in another way, it does take the drama out of it. <laughs> if Lex Luthor said to him, "Could I, I saw you flying with Lois Lane, could you take me flying? Yep. <laughs> Definitely, it's good that you've changed. And then we'll just have a pint together and just maybe have a chat, maybe go for dinner. There's a Batman movie on. Yeah, I don't want to watch that anymore. <laughs> I can't see him saving the day. And sometimes, with feminism, I think we know what our position is and we know who the enemy is and we want to say, oh, you're bad. It's fun to be right. And it's fun to be right in groups. <laughs> That's what this is. 
It's a collective agreement that we'll come and be right together. That's what it is. That's why it feels like a party. It's lovely. It's like people come out and it's like, yay, a right person who thinks like me. But actually, feminism needs to be a force to change. And recently, I've had some emails from men. Uh, there was a chap called Lawrence, and he wrote in and he said I could read out the email. And he basically said, I think he sort of had listened to the podcast to hate it a bit and was like, oh, a feminist. And he said, over a year and a half, you've won me over. And he said, like, I just, I'm listening, and I realize, oh, I other people all the time. Anyone who's not a straight white man, I other them. And he said, sometimes what you say annoys me, but please keep saying it, because it's changing me, and I'm getting it, and I'm seeing it, and I'm realizing it, and I'm having these moments. And since I read that out, so many men have written to me. Like, I get emails every single day from men going, I too am Lawrence. <laughs> and sometimes the language they use isn't, you know, it's a, it's a bit sort of like... They say females instead of women, things like that. But, <laughs> but they, they, the, the desire to change and include is there. Do you know what I mean? Language is changing all the time anyway. But if the desire to include is there, all of that stuff is details. And I've even had some surprising messages from young men who I've thought were quite, you know, inclusive and feminist and arty, and they look like hipsters. And <laughs> even they have said... One young man wrote to me, and he said, up until a year ago... Although, you know, I'm a liberal person and blah, 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 and I like women and I'm not an incel. Um, I, he said, I didn't, up until a year ago, I didn't think women were as funny, profound, or inspiring as men. All right. He might, he might have bought a ticket for the show. And if you have, sir, do not identify yourself. But he's... You know, and I said to Bishop Kayali, who you guys know, does the show with me a lot, I said, do other men, how many men think this? And she said, loads. And I was like, but he's, she said, yeah. And she said, but think of it from his point of view. How many opportunities does he get to see women be funny, profound, and inspiring? And what he said was, listening to the podcast, I hear women be funny. And I mean, I don't know that we're profound. <laughs> inspiring, I mean, you know, it depends what mood you're in, but there's access to, there's access to seeing women say more than one thing that's actually, you know when they put a woman one on the end of the panel, and then they turn to her and go, woman one, speak on behalf of all women. <laughs> of course we're not funny, profound, and inspiring in that situation, because as soon as we start saying something funny, a man jumps over the punchline. So, yeah, she's right, Bish is right. We need to see more examples of women being funny, profound, and inspiring, or other things, clever, fast, feisty, <laughs> our favorite word. Um, and when that happens, no, as that's happening, as we are making happen tonight, there will be real change. We can change minds. We can change, collectively, the mind of an incel of a guy who said, I'm involuntarily celibate, and he can wake up and realize two things. One is, nobody owes me sex. Like, nobody owes any of us sex. And the other thing is, I've, I've got a hand. So... <laughs> so tonight... Tonight, we are going to talk about change, and then tomorrow, we are going to make a change. Uh, are you ready for our first wonderful stand-up comedian? Then put your hands together and make incredible
Wonderful Guilty Feminist Woohooing Sounds for Sindhu V! Hi, everybody. It's so great to be here. I'm actually in a great mood. I mean, guilty feminist, you guys. But I just want to start by saying something which is a little bit of a downer, which is just politics everywhere. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not a political comic, but I feel like I can't get it out of my mind. Are you guys with me? It's just terrible, you know? And, and my parents are staying with me. And like good Indian parents, they're here for eight months. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, as my mother said... Well, we'll come for your birthday, then it will be Halloween. <laughs> How is this something we're celebrating now in India? I don't know. And then, uh, you know, it is the Christmas, then it is the baby's birthday, then it is the summer holiday. I'm like, then it's my birthday again. <laughs> anyway, so they're here for eight months. Anyway, and I was telling my mother, I was like, oh, I'm so worried about politics. What's going to happen in the future? Like me and the kids and what's... And she said, oh, oh just shut up. You know, it could be much, much worse for you. And I said, how? She said, well, you could be dead, husband could marry the pretty lady, and she could be cruel to your kids. And I was like, oh, shit. And I said to my mom, I said, mommy, that is very specific. You know? Plus, she said, the pretty lady. I was like... What or who does my mother know that I don't know? But I tell you what, I immediately stopped thinking about politics and started thinking about my husband. <laughs> you know, this year, I will have been married 20 years. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. But what that actually means is, for 20 years, I have worked with this man. I have worked on this man. I'll say it. I'll say it. And you know what? I'll be totally honest with you. I have manipulated the shit out of this man. I have. I have. Right? <laughs> to make him a mildly agreeable spouse. <laughs> and I'm going to die and some bitch gets to inherit that? No way. So I went and found my husband who was reading, and I said, hey, if I die all of a sudden, are you going to get married again? And my husband was like, what, what, what are we talking about? And I was like, oh my God, you're stalling. I mean, this is a yes and no question. So I said to him, before you make up any more lies, let me tell you the correct answer to this question. You please memorize it. So I said to him, first of all, if I die all of a sudden, you mourn me every single day of the week, all right? Second of all, there is a giant picture of me in the hall. And every time you walk past the picture, you stop and you do namaste to that picture. <laughs> and if the kids are around, you gather them up and you cry a little bit. And then after 20 years, my husband, he knows me very well. He knows my whole family very well. So he looked at me and he said, oh, have you been talking to your mother? <laughs> and ladies and the few gentlemen that are here, 
let me tell you, you know what I, you know what I said to him when he said, have you been talking to your mother? I said, no, of course not. <laughs> Do you know why I did that? Because if you want to stay married and stay happy, not the same thing, you <laughs> have to know how to win. And one of the key ways of winning is you find the correct occasions and you lie to your spouse. <laughs> I tell you, okay, don't get hung up on the lying part. Think about the correct occasion, right? <laughs> so don't pick some lightweight bullshit like, I didn't eat the last hobnob. <laughs> Nobody cares, it is a biscuit. Equally, equally, don't lie about important stuff like, of course, this is your daughter. No. <laughs> never, never, never. No, no. You must pick the correct occasion. So, for example, oh yeah, I booked the holiday that week. I didn't know your mother was coming. <laughs> And the reason you lie like this, which is like non-long-term damage lying, The reason you do that is when you do that, you keep your spouse mildly destabilized at all times. Yeah. And that gives you more power. More power means a higher chance of winning. So yeah, I think winning is so important because actually people think you win because you know, it's for your ego. Not at all, not at all. You win because you love being married, because when you win, you feel better about yourself, yes? You feel better about yourself, you feel better about the world, you feel better about the world, you're a nicer person, you're a better spouse, you do it for the health of the unit. <laughs> it's not for you, it's for the unit. And I, you know, I have all these ideas in my head about how to keep the sort of winning mojo going, and one of the things I've realized, and you guys can take this away, is it's, really useful to have other techniques. One of them is Uber. And I'm going to explain how. You know how the phrase, well, my Uber's here, it's become the get out phrase of our times, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like think of all the social situations that might have been a bit awkward and now you're like, oh, my Uber's here. People are like, fine, just go, right? Just go, you know? I mean, what other phrase has that kind of power? I've thought of two. One is, oh, there's the signal and I'm Batman. People are like, oh man, dude, you better go. <laughs> And the other one, which many of us in this room could use, is oh, my water broke. People are like, oh, please go, just go, right? <laughs> What a powerful phrase. Well, my Uber's here. I feel like if ISIS kidnapped me and took me into a cave and was doing, I don't know, pummeling the shit out of me, and my phone went ping, and I said, oh, my Uber's here, they'd be like, ah, Habibi, please go. Go. <laughs> Get out, Habibi. Such a good phrase, right? So, What I've started doing is I've started using it now. I was having an argument with my husband and it was about chewing gum and he was saying, why didn't you put it in the bin? And the bin was right there. And I was like, I am going to lose this argument. And that is not good for my marriage. So what I said to him was, oh, dude, my Uber's here. And he's like, oh, just go. Except I didn't have a gig. I had not booked an Uber. So I spent two and a half hours out of the house. But when I got home, he didn't bring it up. Technically, I had won. Yeah. So take that. Take that with you. Um, oh, kids. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. No, actually, let's talk about my mom. 
okay? Because she's living with me and I need to tell people how I love her, but oh my God, it is so stressful. Who here feels like they can get stressed out by their mothers like this? I know, right? And the thing is, my mother used to just be like plain old mom annoying, but she's old, old now. You see, and when you're old, old, what that means is you have given up any desire to have a rational conversation at all. Okay? You know, she was so obsessed with this. They have, they have just arrived, but just before the royal wedding, she was obsessed with this. So she called me every day and she would say, who is making the dress? And I'd say, I don't know. She said, we are the public, we should know. I'm like, you are definitely not the public. You live in Delhi. And, you know, and she had, every day it would be something, something, something. And also, you know, she loved Diana. Oh my God. So she would call and say, oh, that poor Harry. He has to have the wedding with that bitch, Camila. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, it was so crazy. She's lost it. But, <laughs> my God. And also, I do a lot of these calls on the speakerphone when I'm driving the kids. And my baby's eight years old. She's like, who's Camilla and what's a bitch? I'm like, never mind. <laughs> anyway, so I was watching TV with my mom now that she's here watching TV. And there was a retrospective on the band Queen. And we were watching, and then my mother said, you know, Freddie Mercury is an Indian. <laughs> so I said, yes. She said, wo Parsi tha. Like, he was a Zoroastrian, but she was saying it like she was discovering this right then and there. So I said, yes. And then she said, but poor chap, he died of the aid, you know? Hmm. <laughs> and in my head, I was like, you know what? There is no upside in telling her that it's AIDS. Because she's going to argue, the guy's dead. It doesn't matter. So I didn't say anything. And she said, Aid, you know the Aid? Aid, have you heard of it? And I got sucked into her vortex of bullshit. And I was like, Ma, it's Aids, Aids, with an S. She said, Aids, it is a one disease, not a many diseases. <laughs> and I should have left it, but I didn't, because she'd flipped my switch and I was off. So, so I said to her, you know what? It's S for syndrome, not plural, S for syndrome. She said, oh, you seem to know a lot about this disease. Is there something you would like to share with me? And then my husband walked in and she was like, oh, so your wife, huh? She's an expert in the aid of Freddie Mercury, huh? Aid, you know, aid. And my husband was like, is she talking about AIDS? And I was like, dude, I don't know, my Uber's here. And I took off. Anyway, that's my time. You guys have been so nice. Good night. this panel with me and also welcome to the stage Karis Afoko, Scarlett Curtis and Becca Bunce. Karis, <laughs> hello. Hello. Uh, Scarlett, hello. Hello. Becca, hello. Hello. I outside the washroom, I met Scarlett, who said, 
hello, I'm Scarlett. And I said, hello, I'm Scarlett. <laughs> and I was like, what am I saying? And it's not even like I've done drugs or anything. And then I explained to her that I wasn't Scarlett and she was like, yeah, I kind of knew that. But anyway, it's been a weird day for me introduction-wise. See, this is where being a comedian is unhelpful because in the old days, before you were a comedian, you could have just be- pretended to be called Scarlett for the rest of your life when you bumped into Scarlett. You could have just been like, yeah, that's so weird, that's my name too, both Scarlets, high five. I'm the only Scarlet in India, hello. <laughs> Could have said it was I a was Sanskrit really excited name. that we might have had the same name. So nice. Thank you. Thank you so nice. Um, thank you so, thank you so, so nice. firstly, tell us a little bit about each of your wonderful ventures. Hi, um, I'm Karis. I'm the executive director of a new feminist organization called Level Up. You can all join. Go to welevelup.org forward slash guilty feminist. Had to get the plug in. Um, and basically, we launched in January and we're a new community for people who are feminists and want to work together to end sexism in the UK. So we're running campaigns, and we're also just providing support, you know, to deal with the daily grind of everyday sexism, so kind of tools and trainings and things like that. Uh, Yeah. That sounds really delightful. (laughs) Scarlett? I am Scarlett. That is actually my name. Excellent. And you have ID, presumably, to demonstrate that. (laughs) I've got my passport. Um, I'm Scarlett. I am the co-founder of a group called The Pink Protest, We kind of create campaigns and social media campaigns and video content for young activists that want to get more involved with politics. The end of last year, we organized the Free Periods Movement, um, and we organized a a protest in Parliament Square where 2,000 young girls came out to Parliament Square, and then in January, we found out the government, as a direct response to the protest, are giving 1.5 million to address period poverty in the UK, which is pretty exciting. Amazing. Um, Yeah. And now we're just working on a lot of other campaigns. Our next campaign is trying to end the stigma around female masturbation. That's oh. fun. Yeah. <laughs> I already feel awkward. <laughs> so She's does my not... mum. Yeah, she not... told me not to say that tonight. Did she? Yeah. Did she say, please don't talk about she said, losing stigmas for things that are awkward? Yeah, she was like, it's just too far. It's just one step too far. Is that what she said? Yeah. Just one step. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's why she's your mum. It's important that there's some generation gap. Otherwise, yeah. what do you have to rebel against? Yeah. That's partly the problem, because you're millennial or a millennial Gen, Gen Z. Z. Yeah. You're Gen Z. I write the Gen Z hit list for the Sunday Times. Look, we're no one in America. Surely it's Gen Z here. Oh, fuck, yeah. Is, is it? Is, oh, because you live in America. I've been in America for four years. This is okay. the problem. I say okay. trash now. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> okay, so you've already done quite a lot. If I, How old are you? 22. 22, yeah. If I were 22 and I'd already got one point something million funding for something feminist, I'd be having another gap year, personally. Yeah, I just never go out or ever have boyfriends, so that's kind of how I free up my time. That's why you're ending the stigma about masturbation. Yeah, that ties together, yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's another branch of incel. (laughs) No, it's volcel. Listen. Incel vibrators. Yeah, full cell. There's nothing wrong with being full cell. Becca, tell us a little bit about you. I co-founded the IC Change campaign, which is... I'm bringing Violence Against Women to a comedy podcast, which is always a slightly awkward mix. But the Istanbul Convention is the most comprehensive law on violence against women. It's an international law, and it looks at the pathway of preventing violence, protecting people that are experiencing violence, prosecuting those that are perpetrating violence, and importantly, also monitoring the violence that's happening. In the UK, we have promised that we're going to bring this law in, but we haven't actually done it. 
So we started this campaign three and a half years ago, and we made a joke that what we'd do is just individually take each of the laws that needed to be put in place before this international law can be put in, that we'd just do that ourselves. And then last year, we actually took a law through Parliament on combating and preventing violence against women. Okay, so let's get down to it. How do you do that? Because I think if I thought, right, I want to get a law through Parliament, I'd be like, day one, check Facebook. Day two, Google own name. Day three, Google, what is a law? I mean, that sounds pretty similar. Um, So where we started from was that when we started the campaign, we just needed to get people to know that this law existed. I mean, international laws, the idea of the word ratification, it all sounds really complex, when really what it's about is women getting the services that they need. So we started off by creating a coalition of over 50 organisations that supported it. From there, to be honest, it all got a bit bizarre. So an MP invited us into Parliament to hold a roundtable event, so we all had a good old chat about it. And then a few months later, I get a phone call, and someone says, so tomorrow we've got this private members bill, and we've decided to do it on the Istanbul Convention, and we're going to announce that tomorrow in Parliament. You in? And we're like, oh, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> um, and what happened was, literally in 24 hours, our campaign took a strategy which had been much more about reaching out to the public and signing a petition, which is still there, please do sign it. And we then went into something that was a lot more targeted about getting 100 MPs to show up on two Fridays. Fridays are their constituency days, so they're normally not there. And we had almost lucked out that we'd got the Friday before Christmas, which is like Christmas cards and, you know, going along to nice events, carol services, etc. And so we just made 100 MPs show up. And the different ways that we did that were going out. So we made packs up that people could take to their local MP. So they had letters. We had people emailing their MPs, so that kind of action. We also had Emma Watson suddenly got involved, so she wrote a letter to all the MPs, which I'm sure helped a lot. We basically just tried everything to see what would work. That's not necessarily the best campaign tactics and strategy there. We were just like, right, we've got this, let's throw everything at it. And in that time, the three of us that co-founded the campaign, we all went part-time. I can remember writing press releases in the toilets on my lunch break, getting home from work, and then working till one o'clock in the morning. And I'm a disabled woman, so to be honest, my body really couldn't take it. But it's amazing what a bit of adrenaline, a shed load of coffee and snacks can really do for you. <laughs> so my friends went part-time. I was already part-time because of wonky body. And we just kind of went from there. And what was amazing was the number of people that we drew in. So there was a friend who ran our social media. Now, she's doing a PhD, but in fairness, she was 24 hours on social media. And she dealt with all of the trolling. She dealt with all of the interesting pictures that you get sent when you're on a feminist campaign. And... It really was a massive team effort. The other thing was WhatsApp. Oh, my goodness. I apologize to our team. We had a massive WhatsApp group. Whenever something needed to be done, you just put it into the WhatsApp group, and people responded and said, yep, I can do that now. So a lot of it was having to let go of control and go, you know what? There's the best people that we can get to do this right now, and we're going to trust them to get on and do it. So you need a team. You need some people on that team to have time, and you need a WhatsApp group. It's all about WhatsApp. WhatsApp is is amazing. You know, uh, I have an Indian family WhatsApp. (laughs) And that's like 250 people. Uh, (laughs) It's true. And the crazy thing is, if you want something done, like, for example, I'll give you 
slightly less important than what you did. I want mangoes because it's the summer. <laughs> so I put on the WhatsApp, I'm in London, no mangoes, can someone help? And day before yesterday, a box of mangoes arrived in my house. I don't even know who from the group sent it, but... That is an inspiring change that one woman has made. (laughs) It is. On her own. But but the example is WhatsApp. The example is... So, what if you sent out, I need a box of feminism? (laughs) Well, people like my mother would say, yes, it's very good feminism, I hate your father. But... (laughs) A lot of my older aunts would say, I've always thought you should be more feminine. Um, <laughs> this is the kind of response I would get. I don't know if I would get any proper It's a good example of an ask, defense. though. Like, the beginning of campaigning is that you create an easy ask for people to have a start point. And it's always starting from these simple points. An easy ask. Scarlett, do you agree with that? I know you love a WhatsApp. I love it. I mean, almost the whole Free Periods protest was organised by WhatsApp. We had this group called the Free Periods Power Team were incredible it was about 50 feminists in one whatsapp group and we just all every single thing we could and I think you know I'm very obsessed with teenage girls in a not creepy way <laughs> I think teenage girls I think it's want... for other people to decide if you're creepy I don't think you... <laughs> Scarlett you promise I'm not creepy <laughs> yeah you can't preface sentences with I'm not creepy but you're not I'm going to validate creepy. that though Scarlett Thank Curtis you. is yeah, not she creepy does know me Yeah, I'm obsessed with teenage girls. I think the power of teenage girls is one of the most powerful forces we have in this world. Woo! Um, Teenage girls were behind the Beatles first. They were behind David Bowie first. They were behind all social medias first. And with the free periods protest, we were really trying to harness this power of teenage girls. And if there's one thing teenage girls are really, really, really good at, it's Instagram. So that was kind of our main groundwork. And I think, you know, we have this allegation of collectivism that is so often thrown at young people and kind of, you know, you're just signing an online petition and you're not doing anything. Well, we met Amica and she had this online petition. We worked with her. We built her a website. We built her the Instagram campaign. We were very focused on artwork and visuals and getting everyone to the protest wall read. We had some amazing signs. And, you know, it all happened via Instagram. And, you know, 160,000 people ended up signing her petition. 2,000 young people between the ages of 12 and 14 ended up showing up at Parliament Square five days before Christmas. And... It's collectivism is just a way of silencing young people and telling young people that these first steps of online action aren't going to make a difference. And I think what the most recent wave of young people organizing, you know, like we've seen in Florida, like we've seen with Free Periods, has proven is that if you give people the chance to show up and if you give them the chance to take the Instagram post or the online petition one step further, they are going to do it. They are going to show up. And, you know, with our protests, when those young people showed up, that directly led to 1.5 million being given. That's a 12-year-old seeing that happen and knowing that anything else they do within their life can have that kind of impact if they work together that's what i think some of the value of it is just going oh look how democracy works because amica had the idea she looked around and she'd read something about lots of girls in this country because of austerity taking time off school because they were embarrassed because they had their period or they're putting socks in their knickers yeah so one in ten girls in the uk can't afford menstrual products and then one in four girls regularly misses a day of school because of her period and if a girl was to miss one day of school every time she had a period that puts her 135 days behind other boys in her class at school and girls who can afford it yeah so she had the idea then what did she do she started a petition? She started an online petition, and then we were making a film about trying to reduce the stigma around the word activist, because we kind of all think of activism as something to do with, like, throwing blood over people wearing fur. And a girl in her school told her about it. She came along. 
we met me and Grace, who co-founded the Pink Protest, met her and just thought she was incredible. Uh, and then we kind of built this whole campaign together. Amica was doing her A-levels. I was in school studying social movements and kind of making notes in all my classes and then going home and being like, okay, guys, we need to make an identity politics. We need to make a political framework. So you and were basically doing those classes at uni and then basically doing a class and then immediately using it. Yeah, yeah, using it in class probably on WhatsApp on my laptop. And... And I found out about Amica because of you. I think you messaged me and said, could you put Amica on The Guilty Feminist? Yeah, so first I sent you an email saying, I've been very, very unhappy all year and The Guilty Feminist is the only thing that's got me through, which is completely true. And this podcast, like, completely is the most incredible thing. Uh, (laughs) It's very much a group effort. Yeah, And that's what's wonderful about Um, it. And I, yeah, and I just think, you know, there's this theory of politicization which is that you take a personal experience and turn it into a political identity and a political framework and I think what so much of this podcast is about is taking women's own self-hatred or self-critique or something you've been ashamed about and making you realize it's actually a critique of the patriarchy and it's actually a much bigger critique and that's what you've done in the most incredible way yeah so I sent you that and you were like you're a bit creepy um, I, this did is a very overly I did emotional not say email. that. I was, I was moved and... T- <laughs> uh, and then I emailed you again saying, please, we're organising this campaign. Can Grace and Amica come on? And all of it happened through things like that. You know, we ended up with two MPs, three supermodels, five comedians all speaking at the protests. And that was pretty much all through mad Instagram DMs and trying to call in favours. You see, now this makes me want to apologize to my teenage daughter for the grief I give her for being on social media. Yes, she's probably doing activism. (laughs) Right now. What I want to say to her is, show me your Instagram, and if I feel you're activist, you can stay on. (laughs) But if I feel you're doing that pouting into a mirror, taking your own photo shit, you're off. That could be her activism. What? That could be her activism. Activism towards what? This... Appreciating yeah, the way she looks. not to anything. <laughs> but what I'll tell her is, you can stay on Instagram if you go and be activism with yeah, that. Yeah, tell her to follow the pink protest. She, she might be killing the stigma of duck face selfies. Exactly. Cindy. Possibly. Karis, tell us what Level Up is and what you'd like us to do for Level Up. Okay, so Level Up is a community for feminists. So everyone in the audience, all of you, whatever gender, whatever age, whatever sexual orientation, and... We work together to take on sexism and we're going to end sexism in the UK. Only only launched in January, but I give it like two years and we're going to be done. (laughs) Um, So we're in the middle of trying to get a sexist video game taken down. So it's called Super Seducer. Anyone played it? Uh, It's made by a pickup artist. He's a charming guy called Richard LaRuina. And he's made a game starring himself um, where he teaches men to win their dream girl. And you like, basically you play as him and you try out different moves on women. So like grabbing their breasts or maybe touching their arse. Oh, no, yeah, this is a real game. You can Google it. And the good news, because the video game industry is not known for being feminist. Uh, the good news is there's only one retailer that is still selling this game came out on the, interna- the week of International Women's Day. Um, oh, and it's really sad that that's our good news. Yeah, no, well, no, the good news is that PlayStation saw sense, and despite saying they were going to release the game, took one look at it, and were like, we're not touching that. Um, so there's one retailer... Yeah, I wouldn't touch it, because I think, what's on it? Yeah, what's it? What's, where's it been? Where's it been? Um, and so there's one retailer left that's selling this game. It's a website called Steam. We're going to get it to take it down. 
This is a site that has taken down video games because they're too violent. And it's time they took violence against women seriously. So we're going to win it. Send positive vibes. And I think the reason I wanted to talk about it today is that I think that, you know, obviously it's a win in itself. This dude is, like, super unpleasant. He sent us an abusive email recently, which was quite the treat. And this threatening legal action has already sent, you know, cease and desist letters about an article I wrote in The Guardian. So, like, he's an unpleasant character. But the thing that I'm really excited about when we win this campaign is that it's time that companies took sexism seriously and learned that it will cost them and it is a brand issue if they put this kind of stuff on their websites for sale. So that's the company. Sort of just to be clear, it's not really wanting to censor. It's more like, what are we curating? This everything on the internet and people can find the content they want to find. Completely. But if you're a big company and you're selling stuff, you do need to ask, what are you curating? Is it creating an environment that is hostile for half the population and potentially violent and dangerous? Is it encouraging and endorsing and amplifying those views over and over and over again, which creates a world in which women are often physically scared? Completely. And I mean, obviously, we've got a lot of trolls already. They managed to block Facebook from letting us share the campaign this week, which was a stressful 48 hours. But yeah, the sort of men's rights free speech brigade will try and claim this is about censorship. But Richard is free to put the game on his own website. We are just saying that if you are a company that claims to be responsible, that has a track record of taking down other games because they're too violent, then you should extend women the same courtesy as other people because, you yeah, know, we are human beings. It's completely um, fair. Yeah. So a quick what next, what can we do, how can we help you from everyone? Becca, what would you love the listeners of the Guilty Feminist podcast and the audience here tonight to do? Brilliant. So um, you can follow us on Twitter at ICChangeUK and sign our petition. There are some actual very specific asks that we've got at the moment. One is around meeting space that is accessible in London that also has Wi-Fi so that we can get our volunteers to meet on weekends. And there is a volunteers email that you can find on our website. We would love you to volunteer with us. Send us an email. Okay. Scarlett. Aside from the masturbation issue, <laughs> um, I think our goal is just generally to encourage young girls to get involved with politics. You know, start a feminist group in your school, support some of these incredible campaigns, anything. It's not about picking one issue and going with that. It's about dedicating your life to this cause and finding a way to incorporate it into your world. You know, my goal is that activism would become like we work out or we eat healthily it's just something that you incorporate into your lifestyle that makes you feel good about yourself and that you do for pleasure not because you're like oh crap I better do something like that um, right. and yeah. we go to pinkprotest.org yeah. pinkprotest.org and you can follow pinkprotest on Instagram and Karis what can we do for you go to welevelup.org forward slash guilty feminist or follow us on Twitter or Facebook at we underscore level underscore up and we have a campaign to get consent taught in schools, which I don't know if I'll have time to talk about, but the sex education curriculum is changing for the first time in 18 years, and we need young people to learn about consent. Um, so, What is currently not taught in schools in terms oh, of consent? Oh, what? Yeah, I mean, there's a long list. Anyone had the banana on a condom or banana on a courgette yeah, lesson? So, Can I just jump in here? I have to say, I have to say, the idea that there's not sex education in school is relative. I mean, I went to school in India. There is no sex education. You know, you, there's no theory in India. You show up one day for a practical and wing it. That is it. 
But I have kids in this school, and my daughter, when she was in year four or five, came home from school one day and said, Mommy, you never told me I had a hole. So I think a lot is being discussed in school. Sure, but not (laughs) consent, and that's what's key to level up. Because if we teach the mechanics, but we don't teach that both parties need to be into it, that's something you do want your daughter taught. Consent to have sex with the boy I pick for you to marry. (laughs) Sure. Okay, I, mean, I know, I know. Sure. I'm not serious. Yes, okay, let's go. It is go. funny, sure. but the serious, but okay, consent, the serious thing the is that... There's lots of things not being taught, so we need yes. to get behind this because it's going to change things for the next generation. We need to have a plan for the future. Uh, yes. So please get behind uh, IC, uh, Pink Protest, and Level Up. Uh, Sindhu, which one are you going to get immediately behind? This is like The Bachelor now, Mangos. isn't it? All three. Yes, well yes. done. All three. Big round of applause for Becca, Scarlett, Karras, and Sindhu. Thank you so much. Okay, so you've got three things you can get behind. There will be more this evening. You're not going to be able to get behind everything, but you maybe can get fully behind one thing and then see what you can do for these other things. As Scarlett was saying, clicktivism does work. All right, are you ready for our next wonderful stand-up comedian? She's repealing all of the numbers. Big round of applause for the wonderful Alison Spittle. Thanks for that. That's great, huh? So, yeah, I'm going to talk about my week this week because I'm, like, not really into politics normally. Well, I lie. When I was 15, I went for the Westmead Junior County Council. Um, (laughs) I'll explain what it is. Basically, you get to uh, go up for election against your peers to represent your school in a junior version of County Council. So I was like, this is a popularity contest. I'm going to give it a go. So I went for it hard. At the time, when I was about 15, Barry Scott from the Sillet Bang ads was really big. (laughs) Do you remember him? (laughs) Bang, and the dirt is gone. Um, So I drew him and said, I'm Barry Scott, and I endorse Alison Spittle to represent your school (laughs) at the Westmead County Council. Bang, and the job is done. And I was like, yay. It was a dirty campaign, though. I put posters up around the school and somebody drew dicks on it, uh, which I took as a form of aggression. Um, But I did, I got in. I got elected to represent my school. Uh, I think it was because I was the only one that bothered, but let's not. Uh, It was me and some other guy. And when I got elected, I was very excited. I, I made a lot of promises to the other kids in my school. We didn't have a bus shelter at my school and it would get ra- we would get rained on it a lot in Ireland. So I um, promised the kids a bus shelter. I said, if you elect me, I'm going to get you a bus shelter. So the first day in junior Westmead County Council, I said, I need to get these kids a bus shelter. I've made promises. Um, they said, Alison, it's not our jurisdiction to look after bus shelters. You're going to have to ask the bus company. I said, look, I've tried. And I left it at that and ate my free meals for the rest of that year. (laughs) It was 
It was hard. It was good, though. I got my first boyfriend when I joined the Westmead Junior County Council. Uh, I knew he fancied me because I put myself up to be the leader of the council, and he seconded my motion. I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, we were like the John Major and Edwina Curry of my... It was beautiful, so it was. Except I don't think that Edwina Curry cried when John Major asked her for a hand job at a festival like me. <laughs> She'd get in there, there'd be no tears. <laughs> Good honor, it's a conservative way, it's beautiful. <laughs> Roll up your sleeves. So. <laughs> um, and uh, my other soiree into politics came when I worked for a politician uh, for work experience when I was about 16. And this was great. I had to write his letters for him to Parliament. And it would be letters like, please fix the potholes in the town. But there used to be this one guy who would come into the office every day. No one's really allowed in the office, but this man would make his way in. He'd always be a bit drunk. And he'd be like, when are we going to get the six counties back? Uh, which is Ireland. Oh, shit, yeah, you don't know about that, do you? <laughs> Do you know what? Brexit? You're going to find out soon enough, buddies. <laughs> We're going to get them back. Yeah. <laughs> I kid. I don't know. <laughs> so, I'm not even particularly Republican, to be honest with you. I'm originally from England, and when I moved over to Ireland, uh, when I was about six years old, a lot of people used to come up to me and go, up the ra, up the feckin' ra. And as a child, I was like, oh, oh my God, this is brilliant. Oh, Irish people are really into their Egyptian mythology. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to love it. <laughs> I had no idea who the IRA were at the time. I asked my mum about the IRA. I said, mum, tell me who the IRA were. And this was the mid-90s. She didn't really want to get into it. Um, <laughs> they were at their peak at that point, you know. And she said, Alison, I can't tell you. And I said, Mum, just please tell me. And she goes, right, I'll tell you who they are here now. Alison, eat all the crusts off your bread, Alison, or the IRA are going to come in and kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been protecting my family from sectarianism ever since. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they've remained unscathed. So, yeah, I wasn't really into politics that much until the referendums come up. In Ireland, we have this referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. The Eighth Amendment was brought in in the 80s because Conservative Ireland could see the writing was on the wall. We had just about started legalising condoms, or it was on the way, and they were like, holy shit, we better put a stop to this. So they put in an amendment to the Constitution that said the life of the fetus is equal to the life of the mother, and it's just been very, very hard to get abortion rights for every situation. I think, I hope to, I really hope it's going to get repealed Saturday. I really do. But I've been having many nervous breakdowns for the past month, looking at Twitter and going, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then going to bed for a day. And I realized that, <laughs> you know, political. Um, and then I decided, Alison, you're going to be mental anyway. Why not bring it out to the public? So, <laughs> so you know. That's how everyone gets involved in politics, I think. So I um, started canvassing, and uh, you have to knock on people's doors, and you tell them information about the referendum and hope that they vote yes to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And it's been a mixed bag, to be honest with you. On my first day, 
I was there and I was uh, paired up with an experienced lady called Rachel who was uh, canvassing for a few months and she brought me along. And I was standing there and I was at a door and a lady answered it. And she goes, no, I don't want to repeal the Eighth Amendment. In fact, I believe in life. I think life is life and killing is killing. And I got really angry and I said, that sounds like the shittest Ace of Base song ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Rachel, the girl I was paired up with, was like, Alison, don't talk, it's okay. <laughs> So I just silently marked off uh, bits of forms. But it's been mad because in Ireland, I'm not famous, but I have been on the telly. So like some people will do like a second glance. And I once, I was canvassing outside a train station and I was handing out badges and this lady goes, no, I am voting no. And she walked on and then she turned around and she goes, oh, it's you. Can I get a selfie? And I was like, nah. You get selfie when I get rights to my own body. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and it's mad. You've got to have a look at the home to vote hashtag. It's beautiful. It's really uplifting. People are coming home from Vietnam, uh, Buenos Aires. They're all traveling back to Ireland tomorrow to vote in the referendum. It's great because I got this job like a few weeks ago, and I had to book my ticket to fly home tomorrow. So I feel like I've gone home to vote uh, without the horrors of emigration, you know? <laughs> I'm delighted. But um, the thing is, um, I think my mind has been warped from the whole referendum. In Dublin, like, if you look around, there's signs everywhere with fetuses on it. There's actually a van with photographs of fetus parts uh, with the Bee Gees staying alive on a loudspeaker... <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could come up with a joke about that, but <laughs> it's fucked up, right? And the thing is that, like, anything that comes up now, I think it's about abortion or abortion rights. Like, I was on Instagram the other week, and I was about to report this picture, because I was like, this is disgusting. It's just abortion porn. Someone's after, from the no side is after putting up an advert here. And I looked at it a second time, and I realized that it was just a picture of chicken wings that my friend had put up. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of <laughs> so <laughs> and I was like you're thinking about this too much Alison you gotta push back a bit um, uh, <laughs> and it's mad uh, the side that don't want the 8th amendment to be repealed they've been lying for the past few months they've been absolutely lying to the Irish public about so much stuff. In fact, I'll give you a quote from the head of... Uh, well, he's not the head. He's just some guy that doesn't like women. Um, <laughs> but he, So he was on Sky News yesterday, and I'm just going to read this quote off my hand. This is what he said. I'm not a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go on. Sounds like the shittest Britney Spears song ever, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm not a woman. <laughs> um, I don't have a uterus, he says. <laughs> I'll never have an abortion. But I've spent nine months inside one, so I feel like I can have an opinion. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> I tell you guys, like, you can't donate in any way to the yes side, 
but please just send us care packages, mate. We need some shit. Like, after this, it's like PTSD. Um, so I got this bit that I do in Ireland, and I'm going to try and do it here. So the Ion Institute is a right-wing Catholic group that are behind the no side, and they've been around for years, and they've been pushing anti-women's rights agenda for years. And they're liars. They lie all the time about stuff. So I got so mad with their lies, right? I'm going to play a game with you. And what it is, right? It's a game called the Iona Institute or Stoats, right? Stoats. So I want you to shout out. Well, I'm going to give a fact, and you have to tell me if it's the Iona Institute or Stoats, okay? You're a small version of a weasel, right? <laughs> we have them in Ireland. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> we also have the EU in Ireland as well. It's great. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I know it's your lives, and I'm like, meow. <laughs> sure. um, so I'll say a fact, and you shout out, I own Institute or Stoats, okay? <clears throat> Blank eats its own weight in flesh every day. You're right, I own Institute. Fair play. Good on. <laughs> when scared, Blank secretes a smell off their glands. What are we thinking? I own Institute. Amazing. Fair play. Fair play. <laughs> Blank are a pack of lion bastards. What are we thinking? Stoats! Yay! <laughs> Have a great night, everybody. I'll see you. Josie Norton, Sarah Pascoe and Ashling B. Hello, hello. I'm not the way the man's taken centre stage. I mean, you don't know. I'll tell you why. You'll tell me why. Why? You know, I'm one man. Sitting in oh. a panel discussion oh, with poor oh, baby. women oh, in front of all of our lives, all of the feminists oh. on the night of the hundred episodes of the Guilty Feminist. I know it must be. I mean, awful what for was you. I thinking? <laughs> but to be honest, I'm I'm actually happy to be here and proud. Oh. You know why? No. That, why? You don't have a clue. It's because of the, all the feminism education doses I've been having in the kitchen. Steve lives with me, you need to know that for that, that joke to work. I've been... <laughs> only a minute ago, backstage, I've been imagining the, the layout of the house, of the kitchen and the living room, and how they are, all the sofas and the, the chairs are facing the living room. And only a minute ago, I've been living with you and Tom for seven months now, and only a minute ago, I've realised why this one chair is facing the kitchen. I think part of me wants to make a new hashtag and call it with your morning smoothie for... With a what? What was that with again? With your morning smoothie. That's what happens with your, sometimes. With your okay, smoothie. Smoothie. Oh, smoothie. Mm. Oh, with your so morning smoothie. When I go to smoothie. the kitchen sometimes to make something, we end yeah. up having some uh, discussion 
and I've been learning a lot more about feminism since then, and that's why I'm Are happy you keeping to be a prisoner here. in your house? <laughs> <laughs> With your morning okay. smoothie. Yeah. Here, have this. Don't it's ever a, leave. It's you can't. It's locked. Okay. It's a nice prison. So I probably need to give some context. <laughs> All, right. All right. So, firstly, Sarah Pascoe and Ashling B, you know, they're comedians who've been on the Girls Feminist Forum. We're before. not prisoners. Also, we are not prisoners. We're free. Also, Please, you know them free. from such shows as the television. Um, they're proper, right, famous comedians. This is Josie Norton. Josie runs Help Refugees. Josie, every time I see Josie, because she started Help Refugees, and that umbrellas loads and loads of different kitchens and information networks and all sorts of people who are volunteering with refugees across Europe, and it umbrellas those. And every time I meet Josie, I expect her to be like 55, because she started and runs Help Refugees, and every time I meet her, she's like 29, like every time. And I'm like... Josie, how are you doing this so young? Um, this is like an I'm a feminist, but like you've been under so much stress, but how do you stay so beautiful like that? Tell us about your skin ratio. What's so your skin ratio? 33. 33, yeah. Well, you look 29. Well, and thanks. Stress but, you must but, be but Debs, we have that with you as well. You run the guilty feminist yeah. and have done all of these incredible things. I expect you to be like a suffragette age. <laughs> <laughs> well, I use oil of Olay and... <laughs> And a little bit of Botox. No, that's not... Word to our sponsor is Botox. I, as I said that joke, I went, that's not going to play here. And it did not. People just went, we're just disappointed. This is meant to be about refugees. It cannot be about Botox. I, 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 Shit. I, I don't think it... I this don't is think why it, they call it the guilty I don't think it's as much about judgment as you think. I think it's a very young audience. These are women in their early 20s. Oh, who do you know think they're in their early 20s? Don't they got them Botox yeah. to hell. <laughs> There's a group of geriatrics who had nothing else to do this evening. Oh my God, what a wonderful cause. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> so, Steve, if we come along to... So, Josie is young and yet runs Help Refugees. Steve is from Syria, and I met him through an amazing app called Timepiece, which is about to come on the market, which connects refugees with local people. I thought it would be great for refugees to come on podcasts and then people would hear them and then they would want to be, you know, sort of go, oh, I'll go on that app. And Steve came on Global Pillage and uh, I needed someone to mind my cat. Steve was sofa surfing, which I thought... That's how they get you, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Come round. Mind my cats. I I needed someone to mind my cats and Steve was sofa surfing. There are so many pussy jokes I'm not saying. (laughs) Just so you know, I'm being very respectful. Come round and mind a pussy, would you? This is not how I thought this was going to go. Uh, so, so then... He's trapped in your house. Carry on. <laughs> it became apparent when we came back from our trip that if Steve left, one of our cats would go with him. <laughs> Toast. And Toast and Steve are very closely aligned. And now Steve is like my brother seven months later. So I would recommend you get a Steve... <laughs> because I'll tell you why. Steve, you have to wink at us if you need rescuing. <laughs> you need to like do a little sign. Because what Steve's describing is one of our armchairs doesn't fit in the living room, but we don't want to throw it away. So we've just pointed it at the kitchen. And sometimes it's handy. You want to loll in your kitchen. Yeah. So sometimes Steve's <laughs> making a smoothie in the morning and we're having a chat, and he says something which I feel. Does the feminist alarm go off? Yes, yeah. Sarah, it does. <laughs> so Steve and I have a special talk about feminism. 
over breakfast. And that is what he was referring to with hashtag over your smoothie. <laughs> yep. And Do you we... just want to have a smoothie sometimes, Steve, yeah, don't you? I, I, so I, sometimes I, you're I, like, just let me eat these berries I, I, and not I, the lecture lebs, you know? <laughs> Do you enjoy hearing about feminism at the breakfast, though? Say yes, Steve. Please say yes. I, I worry about <laughs> you giving it to us. Yes. yes. And, okay, so I've got a question. Okay. Can I bring yes. some ma- men round to listen to this lecture? Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Bring all your boyfriends, anyone, just men you've met in the street. Now, listen, we've got to talk about help refugees. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Josie... Um. You give context, please. Tell us about help refugees. In 2015, a million people arrived in Europe fleeing conflict and awful things that were happening to them. And myself and some friends uh, were seeing all the images on the news and just feeling like putting something on Facebook didn't really feel like enough anymore. So we decided to raise £1,000 and one van load of things and take them to Calais just because that was the closest place to us, even though it was happening all around Europe. And accidentally... The link totally went viral, and we ended up raising £56,000 in a week and starting a... <laughs> um, and starting a wish list of those same... Like, the, one, the most wanted items, which were sleeping bags and shoes and all those kind of things. And the storage, which had given us a room for free, called and said, you're going to receive 7,000 packages tomorrow, so you need to get some volunteers down here. So we suddenly had to organise getting all these volunteers. 7,000 packages arrived every single day for five weeks. And (laughs) then we suddenly also realised that we didn't know who we were going to give any of this stuff to. So we went to Calais and expected to find the big organisation or government or someone who was helping all these people who'd found themselves in a terrible situation, which we could have just as easily found ourselves in. And there was no organisation there. There were some small French associations who were trying their very best to deal with this number of people. There were 5,000 people there at that time living in a field. Babies had no nappies. People had no shoes, nothing to eat. There was, you know, no wash services, no showers, no toilets. If people had a tent, it was a rubbish festival tent that had a hole in. And we felt like we couldn't unsee what we'd seen. So we ended up partnering with one of these French associations, renting a warehouse, starting a shelter building program, distribution system, a volunteer program. And there was kind of a, like, combustion of compassion, I feel like, in that, that summer at that time. And so there were amazing, like, grassroots groups who were setting up kitchens, who were doing all these different things, who were coming to work there. And we all kind of formed a unit and ended up kind of becoming camp management of the refugee camp. But at that same time these terrifying gaps in response were also happening all throughout Europe. And again, it was just people like all of you who were stepping up and doing something about it. So there were grassroots organisations working in Greece, doing search and rescue, doing field hospitals, doing kitchens, giving people tents. But again, they really needed support with funds. So we ended up starting to raise funds for those kind of organisations and be trying to fill those gaps and just trying to do what we can. And so nearly three years later... We have 75 partner projects at the moment. We work in 10 countries everywhere from France, Greece to Syria, in fact, with the internally displaced population there. Uh, We've had over 25,000 volunteers. We've reached, helped 722,000 people. I always say we're a movement rather than a charity because we're, it's just normal people donating to us, doing bake sales for us, putting on raves for us, coming to Calais and folding trousers. You know, it's an amazing collective of people just, just saying, no, actually, we're going to do something. And Ashley, that's absolutely wonderful. It's, I think 
the, the most inspiring thing is you were a regular person who just went, I want to do more, and suddenly you've really started a movement. Ashling and Sarah, you came out to Calais for Guilty Feminist Comics for Calais. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us about your experience? Well, we were contacted by Deborah Francis White, who is a wonderful person, would never lock us in her house, um, <laughs> about going and doing this gig. And I'd been like like the silent or vocal supporter of the Health Refugees Project. and a lot of you guys for quite a long time. And also I'd been randomly following the kitchen in Calais for the last year. And the Refugee Community Kitchen is run by this amazing guy called Steve. And yes, if there's anyone here who supports them. That's so amazing. Follow them on Instagram. And it sounds silly, but they're foodies. And they make gorgeous, wonderful food every single day. And it's the best disco I've ever been to. Yeah, they play like dance music in the kitchens. The vibe is of the... 90s dance music. They played Craig David twice. We... Myself and Sarah were... We were in the kitchens going, we're going to... This is going to be really serious. And then we were like, I'm a single ladies. Watch that part. I'm a single ladies. (laughs) Like, we were dancing and having a... There's a huge amount of energy. And we did, I mean, I hope you don't mind saying, the shortest volunteer stint ever, which was an afternoon. And we both felt very guilty about that. And they said, anything is useful. What I thought, and this is what I would say to anyone who goes... I'm too busy. I can't give up weeks of my life. If you go for a day, you'll be an extra pair of hands and you'll be an influx of enthusiastic energy. But the most important thing is, for me, I always feel very unqualified to talk about things. I always feel like someone's going to tell me why I'm wrong, why I'm ignorant, why I'm not allowed an opinion. When you've seen it, when you've heard one story, you've talked to one person, you suddenly start talking about it to everyone here, not in a worthy way. I keep saying, I went to Calais for two hours. I cleaned three pots. But they were now, very big pots, though, Sarah. They, they were so big. You did such big pots. So big pots. Also, you both went out on distribution and you served meals that's it. to I, refugees. I, 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 I and you did a, a but, show for the volunteers, but it's, but it's, that's the which really raised morale. There's so, many, there's so many words. Refugee, migrant, immigrant, that are emotive to people and they're faceless. They're dehumanised. And the point of the kitchen isn't just providing food so people don't die. It's giving them some human interaction, I think the really important thing for us with this huge crisis that's going on in the world and right on the edge of the sea across over in France is that we are aware that it involves us as well and could be us at any point. And it's how, as human beings, we deal with it. It is the talking about it because it just feels like it's been going on forever. Mm. What I find particularly interesting about the whole process is there's a sort of feeling of fear at the moment in the world where everything's so overwhelming, you're like, do you know what? I'd rather take a nap and hide. When we were down in Calais, I'll be honest, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is from our trip. And I'm not sure you guys do either. But there are people people coming from the worst situations in the world because of climate change, because of war, that is not going to stop. And we have to make a decision as humans do we go, I don't know what to do, but today I'm going to give you a hot meal and I'm not going to give up being a human and I'm not going to stop seeing you as a human. Despite this chat about, oh, you make Britain look like a great place. You make France look like a great place. You encourage people to kind of get on a boat as if that is ever an easy choice for anyone. In the same way with the abortion debate in Ireland, you give out abortions, you make it seem like an easy form of contraceptive. Nobody wants to come to a cold country 
from like England to hang around for the summer waiting for one day to get into a, a paddling pool in the garden. And then you but have to have is... feminist lectures over breakfast. Yeah, well, it's I, awful I mean, when you get here. Poor Steve has had to put I up mean... with for one smoothie. <laughs> um, but what he's, for, what he's suffered. But what he's suffered, but from that yeah. point of view, what I really felt was, and if you go out and you volunteer, there is a, a decision that today I'm going to be human, I'm going to look at you, and you, we are both just humans trying to get through the day, okay. and there's no bigger solution than just today I also sometimes. think it puts pressure on the government. <laughs> I also think it isn't about thinking that you know the answer. Huge things like volunteering or providing a sleeping bag or a hot meal, if that's something that's accessible to you, that shows our government, every time someone does that, it shows how important it is to us and that we aren't switched off from it. Um, even though we don't know the answer, particularly we want to be part of a solution, and that speaks volumes. This literally could be us. It's just we have not had found ourselves in that situation. And that if it was your mother or it was your child or your brother or your sister, you would really hope that someone would take the time to go and spend the day chopping onions. Or, what I was really struck by with our, the day we went out was so many of them were young guys who were just kids. Like, they felt like everyone's little brothers. And when the van comes out, so we bring the food and we set out all of the um, kind of food stations and people queue up. And there was a big thing, which I think is amazing, about when you're giving out food, about, like, the dignity of, like, choosing what food you want, please and thank yous, from our point of view and from their point of view. And also, like, the van was playing dance music, like Kanye and all that kind of stuff. And everyone just wants to have a little bit of a, a moment. And it had been a particular bad day the day we went because the police had come in and just stripped away their tents and that happens every two to three days they don't have any belongings totally. anymore because they're stolen periodically so it used to be people had rucksacks with clothes and their tents and now the day that we went the police had been smashing their phones on purpose so their lifeline to home, home and to their family. mothers and, their and it's sisters. not even the real police it's the crs who are basically hired thugs they don't know the law and our tax we half pay for them don't we steve this is your actual experience and i feel we might be women explaining refugees to you <laughs> It's um, actually really bad, Steve. Yeah. Steve, things are actually really bad. You went there for half yeah. a day. It's... We know. Look, we can't. I'm becoming more. If you check my Instagram now, highlights from about a week and a half ago, only, you'll see. They only paid Craig David twice. I mean, what you guys have said is uh, the uh, human interaction and talking to refugees as humans. Refugees are not ghosts. They're not just figures. They're not just uh, them or others. Refugees are individuals they are people like you like me and uh, one example that you once said to me is uh, if you bring a hundred uh, random people from London and put them on a boat you would find people from all sorts of backgrounds among them actually a few weeks ago I came here to a concert by a uh, Syrian singer and in the audience there were people from many different countries in, in war like in, from Iraq and Syria and Libya and Sudan, all countries. And I was just looking at all these people. They are very well-dressed and looking very glamorous and fabulous and having fun and enjoying their time. And I uh, just stood there and thought for a moment, these are exactly the same people who at some point in the past few years were refugees. They were on dinghies crossing seas. They were displaced, they were just, uh, living in, uh, in rough uh, conditions and situations and uh, 
uh, nowhere. And actually, it's in a few days, it's almost exactly a year for me since I came here. And I just before I came here, I went on my uh, pictures and I saw a photo of me. I took a photo of uh, this sleeping bag that I had when I was uh, just a few days before I uh, made it to England. I was just in somewhere in the woods in Amsterdam. I don't really know what to say to you. If you, what you guys are doing is just great when you feel for other human beings, when you realize it could be anyone in this situation. All it takes is just to think and realize that um, it's really important to provide help to other people in need. It feels great to provide help to other people. And that's it's in, just that's what in our bodies yeah. Yeah. to each other. To and you volunteered other. in a way when you were, although you were living in the Calais jungle, you were also a voluntary fireman, weren't you? Yeah, I, when, when I was there. And you mm-hmm. just put out fires every night. And Steve, I went to hot yoga with Steve the other day because his life has changed quite a, a lot. That's a kind of and volunteer. What, what, a, like what a, a segue from yes. putting out fires in the camp to hot yoga. Very similar environment. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you this is a true story. This is a true story. Because I think you see refugees in boats, you go, they're incapable, they need help, or they're going to need stuff, they're going to take stuff. Oh, God, they look sad. You know, if you're liberal, you think they look sad. If you're not, you think they look scary. Um, and, but you don't think... They look capable because you see the picture of them in a boat or arriving somewhere with nothing. The refugees I know are some of the most capable people I've ever met. And when I was at hot yoga with Steve, (laughs) an infrared hot panel above his head in the middle of the yoga class burst into flames. And all of the British people, you know, to be fair, North London try yoga people, uh, screamed and ran to the walls. And the yoga teacher freaked out and ran out to get help. And Steve just picked up a towel off the ground jumped to the ceiling like a basketball player and punched the fire out. (laughs) He punched in one go. What a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. He he punched a fire in the face and it went out. The capability level of refugees is high. If you... And seriously, every time I've said, oh, I need to get a man in about the door, and I came home that night, midnight, Steve was, had our door off. I think he just ripped it off the hinges with his bare hands, <laughs> levelled it, and just punched it back up. And it's, it's never worked better. Uh, uh, so go to helprefugees.org. We need volunteers. We need some people who can go out for a day, two days, an afternoon, a week. Also, what Steve said to me was, if you, and it sounds silly, if you can come out and chop carrots in the kitchen for half an hour, that's a little bit of a break for the people who are there the whole time. Josie, what else do you need? Okay, so please go to our website, www.helprefugees.org. We really need people to volunteer. We really need people to donate. You know, we can only do this because of the funds that the public give us. If you haven't got very much money, maybe you can put on a fundraiser. Think of something creative and fun to do. We also need things. We need blankets. We need sleeping bags. The Women's Centre in Dunkirk need nappies. You can find out all this information on our website. You can buy a Choose Love t-shirt. I'm wearing one now. Um, They're really great t-shirts. All of the profits go towards helping the 75 projects in the 10 countries we work in. And I just also really want to say that although it's not in the newspapers right now, you know, what we read about is Brexit. This is still happening right now. And we really, really need people to engage with it. Write to your MP. There are so many issues to write about. Again, you can find out about those on our website. 5,000 people arrived in Greece last month. Again, they weren't greeted by any kind of response other than the grassroots one. I'm going to say something really sad because I think it's really important that people know about it. A family that were living in Dunkirk in France, they were trying to get to Belgium last week 
and the police were trying to stop them and ended up shooting a two-year-old girl and she lost her life. And people, that's not even in the news. And this hostile environment that's being created um, for refugees who are people just like you or me is not okay and we all have the power in us to stop it. Thanks. Very important. Let's get doing something. Big round of applause for Sarah Pascoe, Ashling B, Josie Norton, and Steve Valley. And now to close our first half in the way only she can. Put your hands together and make extraordinary woohooing noises for the magnificent Ali McGregor! Out of the night that covers me, as black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever my gods may be for my unconquerable soul. You see, I am woman. I am woman. Hear me roar in numbers too big to
You have been listening to the 100th episode of The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, and my very special guests, Sarah Pascoe, Alison Spittle, Kimar Bob, Ashling B, Sindhu V, Karis Afoko, Becca Bunce, Scarlett Curtis, Steve Alley, and Josie Norton with music from Ali McGregor. The Guilty Feminist theme was composed by Mark Hodge and performed live by Mark and the Suffragetten Band. The podcast recording engineer was Chris Sharp. Live sound was by Autograph. Thanks to Michael Harris, Sophie Kinsella, Bridget Mohammed, everyone at Gardening and Live, and everyone at the London Palladium. For more information about this and other episodes check out guiltyfeminist.com come back next week for the rest of this amazing show including more from Suffragetten and Cindy V is an amazing comedian who I forgot was going to do I'm, and I'm a feminist but <laughs> so sorry Cindy I'll never but I what you will know is I you will have that happiness of knowing that I will play that out for the rest of my life anytime I can't sleep and I expect this on? Yeah. I expect nothing less. Yes. I understand. Hey, it's Jessica Foster Q here. I often go host this mighty guilty feminist that you're listening to, but right now I'm just invading your ear space to ask you to please give my podcast a listen. It's called Hoovering and it's all about eating. In this week's episode, I'm talking to Saleha Olpin, who was evicted from MasterChef, the most recent one, with some culturally problematic slip-ups from the host. And I get her incredible story, both of her culinary upbringing in Malaysia and also of how she's been shut out by the PR machine behind the programme ever since she did it, to spare their blushes. So this was actually the first interview she'd done. It's a story that needs hearing, I think. I talk to all sorts of interesting people every week. Comedians, athletes, dietitians, doctors, MPs, activists, the works. And always about hoovering up food. Give it a whirl. Thank you.